The candles are lit and sacred silence echoes between the pews. Vivienne Walker heaves open the door to the sanctuary and her white heels click across the dark vein marble tiles. Her lips are blood red under the nimbus of her white brimmed hat. She has chosen to wear a skirt today. Her pants suits reserved for board rooms and business drinks, places where she sits in power. She has no power here. She has come to seek the dispensation of the power that rests in this place. Perhaps that is why her jacket and skirt are ultramarine. A red colour rises above her lapels and a white cravat blossoms from the diamond these edges create. There is a dark wood cabinet to the right of the lectern. She opens the door and steps in, sitting on the narrow seat provided. Quiet your mind and wrap your rosary around your right hand. It's time for Neon Jezebel. Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. It has been three days since my last confession. But don't worry, I didn't have an especially eventful weekend. There's an old sin that I've carried for a long time. Honestly, I haven't thought about it in years, but... My brother returned home from a sabbatical recently. He was regaling me with tales about his exploits, and one story brought it all back to me. It's a lie. A lie of omission, but nonetheless. I was 18. I was desperate, and I didn't know what else to do. started the summer I turned 16. I had begun drawing the boys' attention at the beach. However modest my swimming costume was, it didn't hide the signs of my maturation. I was vain about it, as I suppose is to be expected of intemperate youth. That July, my family went to see some relatives in Montauk. It was an almost annual tradition. They were my father's people, of course, mother's family being back in the old country. The waters are warmer down there, and Uncle Cecil had a country cottage by a lake. I had a cousin, Uncle Cecil's boy that everyone called Rooster. He had always been a sickly child, and for much of his youth, his coughing woke the whole family at the crack of dawn. There was a looming fear that one day his lungs would give out on him, 
and the nickname brightened that darkness a bit. That became his stock in trade, lightening the darkness. He was two or three years older than I, and was the first boy I ever fancied. Not in any serious way, of course. I was too young for that. For his part, I always had the lion's share of rooster's attention, and it was a popular joke that we would marry. Popular, that is, until I was twelve or thirteen. By then, the subject was too close to reality to make light of. Of course, in my parents' generation, cousin marriages were not at all uncommon, though they were certainly not encouraged. If we had taken up together, I imagine the family would have tolerated it. I tell you this so that you can imagine my excitement as we drove to the lake house that July of my 16th year. For the first time in my life, I felt I really understood the attention of young men, and, while I had no intentions toward Rooster, I wanted him to notice how I had grown up. He was as skinny as ever, and for the first time in my life, he fell short in my appraisal of him. There were so many other boys back home more strapping. Yet he still had the finest wit of any boy I knew. And, for the sake of nostalgia and my own vanity, I hoped we would be as we always had been on those summer retreats, constantly in each other's company, and as close to lovers as innocence and decency would allow. All seemed well until dinner. I arrived early. It was customary for he and I to sit next to each other, but I wanted him to take the chair next to me, rather than the other way around. The adults had gathered already, which further pleased me. It made me feel more grown up than I was to arrive before the other children. When Rooster did make it down, he didn't sit beside me. There was a chair available, the rest of the family assuming he would take it. Instead, he sat beside my cousin Maybelle. He positively beamed at her the way he always had at me. He went so far as to call her his best girl as he sat. Mabel was Aunt Lydia's youngest, only eight years old. I was furious with him for the entire dinner. When Mabel's older sister, Vera, took the seat beside me, I engaged her in a loud conversation about boys, hoping to make Rooster jealous. Vera was more than happy to join in, but Aunt Lydia cut us off after a bit, such things being unseemly in mixed company. I was not entirely dissuaded, though. Over the next few days, I rather embarrassed myself trying to get Rooster's attention. It succeeded, though looking back, I suppose he was just being gallant. He wanted to spare me further humiliation. It wasn't the same. His smile was not as warm as it had been. His questions, not as gentle. By the end of that reunion, I knew firmly and undeniably that I was no longer his favorite cousin. It broke my heart. And upon returning home, I made concerted efforts to turn it to stone where he was regarded. other boys in the innocent ways of young people. I held a boy's hand while caroling that Christmas. The next spring, I had my first kiss, 
with an entirely different boy under a tree at the King Louis house. We saw little of each other once the school year ended, but he did write me letters. So, when the time came to journey down to see the family again, my heart was fortified against any slight Rooster might give me. I was ready. Vera was my instant companion. Like me, she was 17, but her parents were keen to see her married and she had had an offer. We spent most of that visit discussing whether she should accept. He was older than us by a decade, but his family was well-moneyed and, unbeknownst to me, Aunt Lydia and Uncle Herbert were having financial difficulties. In all the excited talk of marriage, I hardly noticed Rooster that first day. At dinner, though, he shot a barb at Vera for the amusement of Mabel, who was nine then. Vera gave him a dark look and continued to grim any time he was within her sight. I ascribed it all to that little insult. Rooster and Maybell were together as much as possible, just as he and I had been. She had replaced me, but I refused to feel hurt by it. Near the end of the reunion, we elder cousins were granted a bottle of champagne to share out on the terrace. There was only enough for each of us to have a single glass. We had all tasted spirits at the dinner table before, but that was under the watchful eye of our parents. Having the opportunity to imbibe among peers and peers alone was set to be the highlight of the summer. Rooster begged off. He was more accustomed to drink, being a man of 19 or 20, so the guilt was off that particular rose. Instead, he announced a plan to take Mabel to a spot he knew that was excellent for stargazing. I knew the spot he was referring to. He and I had spent many evenings out there, lying on our backs, watching the sky. Rooster knew all of the stories and could tell them in delightfully irreverent ways. It seemed perfectly natural to me. Yet Vera protested. She, who had been staring darkly at Rooster the entire visit, now desperately entreated him to join us. She made a half-dozen different arguments and seemed almost beside herself. It was her father who settled it. He told her that she needed to calm down, or she wouldn't be allowed to join in either. Naive as I was, I didn't realize until later, much later, that he was the voice of an entire generation, telling her she was powerless. I'll never know what part my own parents took in the matter. I'll never know how clearly they, or any of the other parents, saw this situation. I only know that I was blind that evening, and Vera was not. We had our champagne on the terrace, Vera looking forlornly out into the forest where Rooster had escorted her baby sister. I laughed and joked with my other cousins, thinking Vera was taking that one barbed joke far too seriously. The time came for the younger cousins to be off to bed, and Maybell had not returned. She was still off with Cousin Rooster, and he was as good as an adult. So, no one voiced objections, except for some of the children who proclaimed it unfair. I remember Vera making a bitter comment about sending all the children out to stargaze with Rooster. Aunt Lydia didn't like her tone, and that was the end of it. 
We stayed out on the terrace a while longer. Even when our parents retired, we remained. When some of the girls went off, Vera would not move, and I chose to stay with her, our male cousins having written her off completely as a wet blanket by that time. It was almost 10 p.m. when Maybell emerged from the forest. She was running and crying. She went straight into Vera's arms, and their combined wails woke the whole house. Rooster meandered in well behind her. Maybell was in no condition to explain herself. Rooster apologetically explained that he had thought to give her a scare, and it had worked too well. He admitted himself thoughtless and a cad. Uncle Herbert and Uncle Cecil chided him, though in terms that belittled Maybell as much as Rooster himself. Seeing no true punishment would come to Rooster, Vera spirited off to their room. Vera and I did our best to comfort Maybell, but she cried wordlessly. When she had finally cried herself to sleep, Vera began to cry herself. He hurt her, Viv, she told me. I knew he would. She couldn't bring herself to elaborate further, but I began to understand. There were only a few days left to the reunion. Concerted efforts were now being made to keep Rooster clear of Maybell. My father proclaimed that the men would be taking their meals outside from then on. It was played as a rugged and masculine venture, but the real motive was not hard to see. Aunt Lydia covered Maybell's appertaining depression as illness. Maybell had caught a chill, was the story, because she was out too late when it was too cold. I noted that Rooster looked sicklier. Not, I wagered from remorse, but merely being separated from Maybell. How could a man of twenty be lovesick for a child? I remembered asking myself. That question turned into something darker as the weeks and months passed. Uncle Herbert and Aunt Lydia decided to go home early, saying they wanted Maybell to see her usual doctor. Rooster looked to be on the verge of tears that he would not get to say goodbye to her. My family left not long after that. Vera and I rode each other often over that next year. We only occasionally touched on the incident, but Vera had no forgiving words for Rooster. She even refused to write his name, referring to him only as R. I was slowly beginning to understand what she was starkly aware of. But most of our correspondence regarded her decision to marry. I was surprised how little she complimented her future husband, books having taught me that brides-to-be are constantly eulogizing their grooms. It was a Christmas wedding, and my family traveled down to Oyster Bay to attend. Vera even made me one of her bridesmaids. Roger, her husband, was a decent chap and handsomer than I imagined from Vera's faint praise. Rooster did not attend. Uncle Cecil said he was taking some extra classes at university and couldn't spare the time. I have no idea how much truth there was in that. My 18th birthday came and went. My letters from Vera declined, but never entirely stopped. She became pregnant that spring and spoke of the coming summer with anticipation. 
Then, just before the annual reunion, I received a letter from Vera of a foreboding tone. She spoke of Rooster for the first time since her engagement. She said that the marriage and pregnancy were a blessing as they set her in some way above him. She promised me that he would not set one foot in her sister's direction without the bitterest reproach from her. By then, I could see him for the fiend he was. I can't say exactly what experience opened my eyes fully, but open they were. July came and my family returned to the lake house. When Uncle Herbert and Aunt Lydia did arrive, Rooster was the first out the door to greet them, despite going into a coughing fit at the sudden burst of activity. To his obvious disappointment, Maybell was not with them. Uncle Herbert informed him that Maybell was in Roger's car with Vera. He gave Rooster a gentle warning that Maybell had not entirely forgiven him for that scare last summer. I heard Rooster ask, did she receive my letters? That question, and the idea that he had been writing to a child repeatedly and without response, made me want to scream at our parents, can't you see what he is? He's a monster! Uncle Herbert said she had not, for fear that his letters might upset her. Rooster flew into a rage and Uncle Cecil intervened. I was not privy to the conversation that followed, but Uncle Herbert came away from it cowed and ashen-faced. Vera and Roger finally arrived with Maybell, and now Rooster produced a large box. It was a gift for Maybell a dollhouse that he thought they could paint together. Vera would not hear one word of it, and another row broke out. Uncle Cecil attempted to intervene again, but whatever he might have had over Uncle Herbert was useless against Roger. He said that he was not familiar with the old argument and didn't care to know. All he knew was that Rooster's behavior was upsetting his pregnant wife, and he would not have it. This awoke in mine and Rooster's mother's a fresh power. They both became involved, saying that yes, of course, it was most unhealthy for a pregnant woman to become upset this way. I remember Rooster's mother telling him to think of the baby. That suggestion sent a chill down my spine, but it seemed to work. Rooster yielded and slunk back to the house. Vera kept Maybell close, insisting that she needed the help in her delicate condition. Of course, Vera was not so far along as that, but Aunt Lydia waved any possible retort away by saying, you know how nervous one gets with their first. Besides, Maybell is delighted to help. And that was that. It seemed that an order had been installed and Rooster blocked from doing any further damage. That was until I saw Rooster with Roger. Cut off from Maybell, Rooster took every opportunity to charm the brother-in-law. He played up his poor health to look as harmless as possible, making his coughing fits more dramatic than usual. Vera and I were alike, disturbed to see how well the two began to get along. After a few days, Vera came to me quite upset. She told me that Roger had entreated her to forgive Rooster and let him make peace with Mabel. Apparently, the dollhouse had been mentioned as well. 
Vera was livid. She had thought that her status as a wife and mother would give her the weight she needed to protect her sister. The way she talked of the situation, it sounded as if Uncle Cecil had an almost mystical control over our parents. As long as Uncle Cecil refused to see Rooster for the villain he was, none of them would stand against the young man. And now, insult to injury, Roger was advocating for him. She was weeping and saying she felt like she was losing her mind. The next morning, I noted how Rooster observed Maybell. They were kept apart only by the efforts of Vera, and perhaps the half-hearted work of Roger, whom I heard apologize to Rooster on Vera's behalf. Pregnancy, old boy, Roger said. It does inflame the emotions. Best not to set her off. I saw it then. All the world was on Rooster's side, and there he was, leering at a ten-year-old girl like the proverbial wolf. I had been but a mere bystander in all of this. That morning, though, something shifted in me. I had seen the wolf that no one else seemed to, and a voice appeared in my mind telling me that it was up to me to rectify the situation once and for all. Vera was stretched to the utmost limit trying to protect Maybell. But could a fiend like Rooster only have eyes for one innocent? If he could so easily charm Roger, who could protect all the other little girls out in the world? began to imagine people saying that his poor constitution meant he could not attract a wife. All he wants is to be a father, I could hear people say, the poor man. Something needed to be done and done quickly. That afternoon, the younger children were playing by the lake. Mabel remained by Vera's side and I took it upon myself to invite Rooster to swim. He was an awful swimmer. But as children, we would take this little boat out and I would dive in. Sometimes he would jump in too, always holding a rope attached to the boat. Other times, he would stay in the boat and watch me swim. Come swim with me, I said. He declined. Come on, I begged, for old time's sake. He still refused. You know... I said. If you and I take the boat out, Vera might let Mabel don her swimming costume to play with the other children. (laughs) I hardly knew what I was saying. The words just spilled out. Wouldn't it be nice to sit in the boat and watch the children play? It worked. Twenty minutes later, we were both in our swimming costumes and getting into the little rowboat. We were sharing stories about past summers, and I had almost forgotten that he was anything other than my cousin, a figure of fond childhood memories. Once we were a good distance from the shore, we stopped. Rooster's gaze was entirely on our young cousins, playing by the dock. Do you remember when that was us? I asked. Yes, he said wistfully. So innocent, so pure. He uttered the words like he was describing a fine wine, one he was eager to consume. 
Come on, I said, somehow still smiling. Let's get in. Oh, Viv, he whined, you know I can't swim to save my life. And that was it. That was the awful moment. I felt all pity and human feeling leave my body. I felt cold, but in the most purposeful and deliberate way. That boat, it was the same one that had been at the cottage for my entire life. I knew every inch of it. I stood, and I prepared to dive in. I placed one foot on the exact spot where I knew I could make the boat turn over. I dove. Rooster screamed as it threw him into the water. I watched his limbs flail in the air for a moment, and then he disappeared into the lake. It was clear enough that I could make out his dark form under the water, and I swam to him, pulling him to the upturned boat. I surfaced in the little bubble of air the boat provided, but I kept Rooster beneath the water. He thrashed at my arm, but he was so skinny and weak. A few big bubbles accompanied a violent spasming in his body, and I knew he was having one of his coughing fits. Still, I held him beneath the surface. I kept him there until he stopped moving. In that moment, my mind brought back a memory of years before when I had seen a boy go under at the beach back home. His father had gone racing into the water and pulled him out. The boy was utterly still his father slapped him repeatedly on the back. The boy coughed and breathed. He was okay. I remember my father saying that it was lucky they pulled him out when they did. If he had stayed under for too long, he would have been beyond revival. I remembered that. As I held Rooster's motionless body an arm's length from air, and I waited. I waited until he started to feel heavy. Then I dove down again, pushing him before me until he just sank. As soon as he left my grasp, I began to feel again, the terrible weight of it, a single thought repeating over and over in my mind. I killed him. I swam back up to the surface and I found that I was sobbing. Whatever coldness had let me do, what I had done was gone. And all I was left with was the pain. The awful, immutable pain of taking another human being's life. The children on the beach had seen the boat turn over. When neither Rooster nor I had surfaced, they had run for help. When I came up for air again outside the boat, I could hear the splashes of people desperately swimming out towards me. My vision was too obscured by tears to see who all had swum out. But it was my brother 
that pulled me back to shore. We came up on a deserted side of the lake, and I sobbed for only him to hear. I killed him. I, I killed him. Cranston didn't understand me. He just said, no, it was an accident. I didn't correct him. I didn't correct anyone. I was inconsolable as they searched the lake for Rooster, though everyone knew where he was. I kept apologizing over and over, and everyone told me the same thing. It wasn't your fault. The police were called, and they dredged the lake that evening. No one asked me what had happened. The younger cousins had already told the story of the boat flipping a dozen times to their parents. Uncle Cecil filled in the bits about Rooster being a poor swimmer. My mother added that Rooster and I used to take the boat out, just the two of us, when we were younger. Vera even interjected that he and I had been the closest of companions as children, just in case anyone doubted my tears. It was all so simple. I had grown since the last time I dove from the boat. A child diving in wouldn't turn it over. But a grown woman could. I just hadn't the experience. It was just a terrible accident. And I never corrected anyone. Neon Jezebel is written and produced by Zachary Westbrook. The voice of Vivian Walker is Emmy Elia. Announcement by me, Océane Thomas. If you like this show, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening from. You can also visit our website at neonjezebel.com 